the Lord is faithful to move. And the Lord wants to move in his whole body to bless his whole body. And one of the things we absolutely don't want this to be is centered on two or three people ministering. We want everybody to minister. And the Lord gives things to everybody. I know some of you all remember Sprott King, and Sprott King was a character. In my mind, he was a character. But one of the greatest things about Sprott is when the Lord quit talking, Sprott quit talking. I don't know if you remember that, but I remember Sprott standing up in the middle of a meeting and saying, Thus saith the Lord, and stopped. And I talked to him later, he said, well, I didn't get anything after that. <laughs> now, I want to let you know, if you stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, and you don't have anything after that, it's perfectly fine. Because Sprott King has already done it before you. And it's perfectly fine. But do you know something? When Sprott talked, people listened because he didn't talk unless he was hearing. But the Lord is going to give us to minister to one another, and as we minister to him, it will flow back down. And I'm hoping to have a good teaching every week, but I expect the highlight of the service to be the ministry of the body of Christ one to another, from God moving through each one of us. I really want to encourage you the Lord will do that, and he will do that. The second thing I want to say, and this is all that the Lord just told me to say before I got up here, was the Lord's hand is not shortened. It is a word for the hour. We keep looking at circumstances and thinking the Lord's hand is shortened because look at all the things the enemy is doing. No, his hand is not shortened. His hand is not shortened. In 1 Corinthians, we shared these verses that it says, the Jews look for a sign and the Greeks look for wisdom. To the Jews, Jesus is a stumbling block and to the Greeks, Jesus is foolishness. But to believers, Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the thing the Lord put on my heart, which I'm repeating, and I probably will say it again, one of the things he's going to do with this fellowship and in this place in Atlanta is reveal Jesus as both the power of God and the wisdom of God. We have taken power and put it in a category, and we've taken wisdom and put it in a category, and we've had conferences on people who think they're smart in God. And we've had conferences on people that think they can demonstrate the power of God. But the Bible says that Jesus is the power of God. The power of God is not something you extract. Jesus is the power of God. And Jesus is the wisdom of God. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, He was made unto us wisdom. And He's going to reveal now what that means. Not Jesus is one or, but Jesus is both the wisdom of God, the power of God and the wisdom of God, and we're going to see it. So that's coming in this time right now. So today, I'm very excited to be talking. I'm very excited to get to a topic that I really wanted to get to early on, but we couldn't do it right at the beginning. And that is accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior, and I title it as accepting Jesus as 100% not 95% Lord and Savior. We've been talking up to this time, and very importantly, about the good news of the kingdom of God, and that that good news is the good news of Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King. That's what the good news of the kingdom of God means. That the good news of the kingdom of God is good news, and it's also serious good news. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something that we can hear and say, oh God, that was interesting of you to talk to me about that. Now I have these things to do. This is God speaking. This is what God is saying, and it's serious and should not be anything that we let go by lightly or even medium, but that we give incredible attention to because it's what God is saying. The Bible says um, that God plans to fellowship with us in a way that we can only begin to understand. And I think Stu's word was hitting to that point this morning. The richness of that fellowship we don't have a grip on. In the scripture it says, The eye has not seen, nor has the ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Well, if our eye hasn't seen and our ear hasn't heard, and our heart hasn't even come up with the things God has prepared, imagine the extent of what we don't understand about Him who prepared the things. 
We can't even conceive of the things he's prepared. Think about conceiving him. And that's why it says in John 17, 3, to know the Father and the Son is eternal life. To know the Father and the Son. And, you know, in Jeremiah 31, 34, he says, it will no longer be needful for someone to say to their brother, know God, for all will know me. And that was the essence of Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant, was that he would write the things on our hearts, the law of God on our hearts, and no longer would there be a need for someone to explain to his brother, know God, for they would all know me. And knowing God is eternal life. God's heart is actually to bless us with himself. The stupidest thing we do is to resist God. His heart is to bless us. From the old covenant, from creation, he sought to dwell with us in the garden. In the old covenant, he said, I am your husband. In the new covenant, he said, I am the bridegroom, and you are the bride. He means to dwell. His heart is for us to bless us. He means to dwell with us. But his heart is so important because he searches our heart. He wants us to be searching his heart. As a consequence, the enemy, when he deals with religion, tries to get you into everything except for God's heart. He wants to get you into every religious process. If God wants to say something, he's got to get on the agenda because we have a way we do things. And God is subordinated under something. The purpose of the enemy is to subordinate God under something, and whatever he's subordinated under is then the thing that is, not, is an idol. But the enemy constantly tries to get God underneath things. And we emphasize that there's basic equipping for every saint. I'm repeating this over and over, but every saint should repent from sin, accept Jesus as their Savior, accept Jesus as their Lord and King, be baptized in water and be baptized in the Holy Spirit, as a starting package. Not 10 months into the Christian life, but right away. Every Christian should start there. So we've been covering through these, and we've gone heavily through good news of the kingdom of God, repenting from sin, accepting Jesus as Savior, and today we're on accepting Jesus 100%, not 95%, as Lord and King. And the reason I'm saying that is that Jesus is so special that he cannot be handled as partial. And in the natural, we have an understanding of this. And in the scriptures, we have a beautiful explanation of this as Jesus as the bridegroom. And in the New Testament, in Ephesians 5.31, and I think many people have heard this probably at your wedding, but Ephesians 5.31 and 32, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking here of Christ and the church. Two to become one, Christ and the church. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3, Paul speaks and says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from simple and pure devotion to Christ. We are being presented as a pure virgin to Christ. I'm going to cover the second part of that verse a little bit later. And then Romans 7, 4, it says, Therefore, my brethren, you were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. And then a great section in Revelation 19, 7 and 8 that talks about the marriage of the Lamb. says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It could not be a more intimate explanation of what God meant for us. The relationship that we're to have with him is very special, like that of a bride and bridegroom, and there's going to be a celebration of the marriage of the Lamb. It's going to be a big deal. The amazing part to me is that we're going to be the bride. 
I keep getting caught up, John, so much on how much get, needs to get cleaned up before I'm that bride. But he's the one that cleans that up. And he imputes righteousness to us, so we will be a bride. And it's a special thing. And I, I mentioned this story in my Sunday school class a number of times, so Marianne's going to be all over this. But in the natural, we are very clear that when two people get married, that they're 100% committed to each other. We don't expect a woman to say to her husband, I love you more than any other man on earth, but one Friday night out of every month, I'm going to go out with another man. But the rest of the time, I'm going to stick with you, but one Friday night, I'm out with another man. And then if the man objects to that, she might say, why are you so picky? You're getting 97% of my time. Why are you so picky? And yet it's fundamentally clear to everybody in this room how disastrous that is and how that's not a marriage at all. And yet we do the same thing with God. We look at God and we have things that we give to God. And many of us in this room are right up there at 95%. We've given God our spouse. That's because we couldn't do anything with them ourselves. We've given God our kids' schoolwork because we couldn't do anything. No, <laughs> we've given God all sorts of things we can't control. We say, I'm willing to drive on I-285. You know, no, some of us are saying we haven't given that to God yet. We might give God our distant future in terms of heaven and hell. Yes, God, you're in on that. I got you as my Savior. But God comes knocking for every single thing in our life just as a husband wants the wife to totally be committed to him and not any other man. God is looking for every single thing in our life to be given over to him. Now, I am not... I am not any kind of a special example on this. God has pounded me up for years on different things. And he would come up to me and say, um, you know, Jim, if you don't see how it's going to work out, you have a lot of trouble giving that to me. You hear me? If I can tell, tell God and say, God, I would like it to work out this way. I would like each of my children to, you know, know you, to have a knowledge of sin, to repent by the time they're 22 before, you know, da-da-da-da. If I can see, this would be a good progression, and now, God, all you need to do is to step in the path that I have laid out for you. Well, I feel more comfortable about that because I've given God a path to get it done. But when you read the Bible, 95% of the time, God does things by ways that men did not predict. If you're talking about uh, Jehoshaphat leading the children of Israel, and God came to Jehoshaphat and he said, okay, well, you're outnumbered over 10 to 1, and this is what I want you to do about it. I want you to take the singers and the praisers and the worshipers and put them out in front of your army and don't give them anything. Just have them sing and praise and worship me, and after them can come the army, and send them out to this place where in the natural they would be slaughtered and glorify my name. That is not what Jehoshaphat was looking for. Jehoshaphat was looking for, won't the Egyptians come? Won't the other people come? How are we going to be rescued? And God said, I want you to go glorify my name. And they walked out and God touched the minds of the enemy. And they looked at the people that were fighting with them and thought that they were their enemy. And they slew one another. And the Bible says it was so complete that at the end, there wasn't one man left standing in the army, which means the last two people had to kill each other at the same time. God wiped out a whole army. When Elisha is talking to his servant, and he looks up there and he sees the army of the Assyrians sitting up there in the mountains, and the servant is panicked. Have you ever been panicked? Have you ever looked up and seen an army arrayed against you? I know you have, if not in the natural, in the spiritual. You look at events in your next six months and you go, it cannot be done. What has to be done? But Elisha did not pray that God would send help. God, Elisha just prayed, open the eyes of my servant. And he opened the eyes of his servant. And what did he see but angelic hosts above all the mountains? For the Lord had hosts of angels. But then, as if God is just saying, I can do it any way I want to, God didn't use the angels. He just struck the entire army blind. 
The whole army just went blind. And Elisha led them to the king of Israel, who panicked and said, what am I going to do with them? And do you know what Elijah said? He said, feed them breakfast. They're hungry. Feed them breakfast. He fed them breakfast. The Lord opened their eyes. They went on the way, and Scripture says that the kingdoms of Assyria no longer warred with the kingdom of Israel ever again. Do you see what our God does? He opens oceans. He sends down hail that is the size of baseballs. He stops the sun. He does things we don't tell him about in advance. And he wants us to know he's that God. And you'll read in the scriptures all the time that the glory might be given to God. Because you see, if God followed every one of my steps, I'd turn to God and say, you appreciated me laying that out for you, didn't you? I mean, I like you doing the power thing, but I was the planner. You see, I hate to tell you, but if it was left up to me, I would have tons of flesh glorying before God. Do you hear me, Stu? I would tell God, look what I did. But the Bible says, no flesh shall glory. And when we come to God and the enemy comes in and says, how could this possibly happen? The how is not an issue. For things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And God is readily doing it in ways that we don't plan. And that's his mode, usually, of what he does. Well, the Lord gave me kind of a vision of this. He said, he said imagine you didn't know cars. You'd never seen a car. And so it was actually in the parking lot out here. And Jesus drove up in a very nice car, something like a $90,000 BMW, something like that. It was black. It was a very nice car. And I was out in the parking lot, and the Lord said, sit in this car and let me drive you around, for riding with me is much better than walking. And I looked at that and said, what is this? This looks dangerous. So I made a deal with him, and I said, I will sit in the car, and I'll put my left leg in, and I'll sit down on the seat with my rear in, but I'm going to keep my leg out touching the ground so that I can walk on the ground with this leg because I'm not dead sure all the things that the future holds. And the Lord said, that's really not the way to do it. I'm telling you. And I said, I know you're telling me, but that's my compromise. And I sat down. And the Lord drove the car about two miles an hour because that's all my leg could handle. And after about five minutes, I got out and I said, well, it was a soft seat, but all in all, I think I'd still prefer walking. Have you got me? We leave a leg sticking out of the car. And if we'll pull that leg in, the Lord will take us to places that were meant to happen that cannot happen when we leave that leg out. Now, the Lord will point out to us where we put legs outside the car. What is the thing that you're holding back? He will point that out, and he's saying, I want that. You know, in, we, uh, oftentimes, we have a thing where we look and say, well, you ought to give 10% of your money to the Lord. But you know, 10% of your money to the Lord is just not nearly what the Lord's asking. The Lord is asking for all of our money. He's asking for all of our money. As a matter of fact, it bothers me the number of verses that I have skipped over the years where I read them and go, that's a tough verse, and I don't come back to it. Uh, Luke 14, 33 says, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Is that a verse you heard quoted in the last month? No. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. In Matthew 10, I think some of you know this verse, Matthew 10, 37, 38, He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Now, when I used to read those things, I would go, I don't like the part where you keep talking about taking the cross. That could be really, really tough. I don't want to just commit to taking the cross. But Jesus said, who is not willing to take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, I want to put this in the right context because the enemy pours in and says, look what you're giving up. Look what you're giving up here. He's asking for all your earthly possessions. He's asking that you love him more than your wife and your family and everything going on. He goes on to say, that he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, God is asking for your whole life. 
And he said, he who keeps his life will lose it. How demanding a Savior you have been introduced to. And that's the enemy. And he focuses on and he says, you've got to give up everything. You've got to give up your whole life, all your possessions, all this. All this thing about Jesus is just shoving things over to him. There's nothing in it for you. And you better rescue yourself or you're going to get really hurt here. And that theme is what the enemy does. But do you know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, I want you to look at me. Because when you look at me, you will see that I am the treasure that was hidden in the field. And this is why Jesus said, he said, I'll tell you this parable of the kingdom. And it's a short parable. And it says, he says that um, in Matthew 13, 44 through 46, it is three verses. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which when a man found and hid again... And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. That's the entire parable. Notice that he went and bought the field not out of duty, but out of joy. When we behold the Christ, the giving of our entire life to Jesus is not out of duty, but out of joy. When we behold the Christ, the giving of all of our earthly possessions is not out of duty, but out of joy. The loving of Jesus is not out of duty, but out of joy. And he says in this, it's out of joy that he bought the whole field. And then Jesus, in, in John 15, 11, Jesus comes back and he says, I want my joy to be in you, that your joy may be complete. And in Romans 14, 17, it says, For the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. I, I can't say this enough. Christians should be the happiest people, and they should be overtly happy. One thing that we did down at Miguel's uh, ceremony, which I liked, I hesitate to do it here because I'm on a microphone, but the guy said, let's just shout to the Lord. Do you remember that? He said, let's just shout. And everybody in the room shouted to the Lord. I've never done that. But I'm telling you, that was fun. It was fun to me. I loved it. I'm going to do it here when I get this mic settled down. But it just shout to the Lord. In Psalm 100, it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, and like Celia was saying, and bless his name. If you ever want to come close to the Lord, there it is. Thanksgiving, praise, and bless his name. Because you see, he is more wonderful coming into his presence. And the scripture just says this. In his presence is fullness of joy. Now, I've had some joy in my life. I've had entertaining things happen. I have been with some of you, actually. I'm not going to look you in the eye. I have laughed so hard that my stomach hurt so bad, I had to do whatever I could to stop laughing. But I have had a joy to me that bounced out of my body. It was just too much. Once I realized that Jesus loved me and didn't just love the whole world, hope when I realized he loved me, that came real to me, I couldn't contain it. And in Galatians 2.20 that's what Paul says. He says, for he gave his life for me, not for the world. He says, who loved me and gave his life for me. And when that became real to me, I went around to people and I would say, do you know that Jesus loves me? And they would say things to me like, well, you know, Jim, we learned this in second grade. If you'd have been paying attention in Bible school, you would have known this a long time ago. But I would say, no, 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 not in theory, in reality. He loves me. Well, see, I'm a very unloving person when I look at myself. I've got all sorts of problems and things that are not lovable. But he still loves me. In his presence is fullness of joy. Now, also at this funeral, the guy was sharing about a fellow named Robert Carter. This is a good story. I shared it with Don just short. This is a great story. I want to share good stories with you. And this guy died. And he was, uh, had been dead, and they pronounced him dead. He was sitting in the hospital room. His wife was sitting there with him, and everybody had left and just left the wife, and she was praying. 
And she kept praying for about 20 or 25 minutes, and the nurse came back in and said, um, well, you know, it's fine for you to pray and everything, but you know he is dead. He was dead. But she kept praying, and he sat up in bed. Well, he walked out of that hospital, which caused no great, no minor stir. This similar thing happened to Don's mother. And he, which no, no minor stir. Well, there had been a prophecy over him that he would hold his granddaughter, and his granddaughter hadn't been born yet. So he went, he, the first thing he did when he stood up, when he sat up was to say, who called me back? And she said, I did. And he said, well, I'm sorry that you did that. I wished you hadn't done that. I don't want to come back. But he lived on, and he held his granddaughter in the next six, eight weeks. And then about six, eight weeks after that, he went to his wife, and he said, Honey, i got to go back home. And he kissed his wife goodbye and went down and sat in a lounge chair. And in 30 minutes, he was dead. And I went up to the preacher after the service, and I talked to him, and he said, Look, I went up and talked to the guy, and I said, What did heaven look like? I've just got to know. And the guy says, if I could just tell you how beautiful the flowers are, I can't describe it to you. And then burst out in tears and couldn't speak anymore. It was fullness of joy. Now, if I can't emphasize, I want to emphasize this a ton. The enemy, of course, is constantly trying to reduce our vision of Jesus. The enemy would like to turn the church into a civic club that's run by people it has nothing to do with Jesus. He wants Jesus' name ripped out of everything for Jesus not to be exalted. And if you exalt Jesus, only exalt him two inches. And once you're saved, the enemy will come in and say, well, that's pretty much it for the Christian life. You know, you've been saved. He blotted out your sins. Your name's written in the book of life. This is your vision from here on. Hold on. Try not to do anything terribly bad and then slide on into heaven at the end of your life. Because the, the enemy only seeds as much ground as he has to. And if you're truly saved, you are truly saved, and he can't get you going backwards, or it's very hard. So he's just trying to make sure you don't go forward. When Jesus gets you saved, he says, I've wiped away all your sin. You're now an infant in the body of Christ, and I'm going to transform you into the fullness of the stature of the way that I am. And we are just starting right now. You are not ending anything. You're just now malleable in my hands. I have just gotten the clay in my hands, and we're going to make something beautiful of you. That's what Jesus is saying. But the enemy is always pushing down our vision of Christ. And when I say joy unspeakable, as I say those words, the enemy tries to lower the vision of what joy unspeakable is. He tries to lower those words. It is beyond what we've seen, heard, or has entered our hearts. And that's the fullness of Christ. So we have a Jesus worth shouting about. We have a Jesus worth singing about. We have a Jesus worth talking to all day, every day, about everything. We have a Jesus who is so marvelous that he listens to me while he is listening to Mary Ann. He multiplexes perfectly. He does not say, that's an hour of prayer, Jim. I've got another appointment. He never has another appointment. He always wants to hear. In my whole life, I do not remember climbing into my mother's lap and her saying, I'm busy. I don't remember it. She may have done it. I don't remember it. I remember my mother's lap as totally welcoming, no matter what was going on. Furthermore, in a magical way, my mother's lap solved several kinds of problems that were unsolvable. She didn't have words, you just get in her lap and it's solved. That's just the way it was. I'm telling you, Jesus is greater than a mother's lap. Jesus is greater than anything that we can think. And what he's saying is, you must see me as the treasure in the middle of the field, and come to me out of fullness of joy. And once you get there, this concept of, oh yeah, sure, I left all my possessions, that's nothing. Oh yeah, sure, I left my life, that's nothing. He's my life. I've gone from a crummy life to true life. That's why Jesus had to say very open, clear words. I am the life. I am the way, the truth, the life. He had to say that so that we would see it. But the enemy is trying to lower it down and said, no, no, no. 
You talk about this life in Christ, what it means is you go to church, you get put on six committees, you're too busy, you can't figure out how to make everything work, and if you don't go and do everything the committee says, then you're dropping God and somebody's going to walk up to you and say, don't you love God? Well, you should be doing all these things. And they're going to take all your time and they're going to do all this and they're going to say thanks. Nope, they're going to be glad they've got a servant that doesn't complain and they're going to run your life for you. That's the enemy. That's the enemy. Can some churches get that way? They absolutely can because they run them like civic clubs. But you see, when you ha we have the Christ, the Bible says he is the power of God. It says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The Holy Spirit will come and empower. I looked inside of me and said, I don't know what I can do about that sin. And Jesus says, I know what I can do about that sin. I can convict you of that sin and I can wipe that sin away. Come let us reason together. Even though that's a scarlet sin, I'll make it white as snow. He can rip down to the deepest unforgiveness, bitterness, hatred, stubbornness. There's some people you meet in life that call themselves Christians and they are stubborn. You know what God said of the Jews? You're not going into that land because you've been good. For you know you haven't been good. You are a stiff-necked people. We have stiff-necked Christians walking this earth right now. God can change that. He can change things. The Bible says he opens doors men cannot shut. He opens doors men cannot shut. He sets free where no one can rebound. Can, no one can put them into bondage again. So when we're talking about this, if you read through the New Testament, you'll find that the New Testament writers have got to emphasize this over and over and over and over again. Because what happens is the enemy tries to work through a religious structure to take Jesus down from being the most important thing to bring Jesus underneath some sort of religious structure so that Jesus is there, but the fullness of the Christ is not taught. Because once Satan can get us into bondage to religion, we don't feel like we can go to Jesus to be rescued. And that's why religious bondage is the worst kind of bondage. Because you don't know you can go to Jesus to be rescued because you think you're there. That's how cult leaders get people to go. They say, I'm the voice of God. So if you rebel against me, you're rebelling against God. There's no place for you to go. I am God's voice. Well, we try to do that. And, and you know, it's very much worthwhile to note who Jesus yelled at while he was on the earth. Because he only yelled at two groups of people while he was here. One were the money changers in the temple. And the other were the scribes and Pharisees. And if you read through those sections of Scripture where he yelled at the scribes and Pharisees, it is terrible. He said, you are like whitewashed tombs you travel land and sea to make a single convert and then you make them twice the child of hell that you are he said you are experts at setting aside the commandment of god for the tradition of men in mark 7 9 you are experts at setting aside god's way for the tradition of men and that is satan's plan for religion Bring in the tradition of men and suppress God. And that's what he tries to do. But Jesus cuts through all of that. Jesus said to those people, you should be leading people into the kingdom, but you yourself do not go in, and you do not allow others to go in. And when he spoke of the condemnation that was coming on him, it was terrible. And these were the religious leaders, people espoused by people. He said in John 5, 44, how can you believe when you receive praise and glory from men and do not seek the praise and glory of God. How can you believe? Which means you can't believe if you're seeking the praise and glory of men. You know, um, I, one time when I was young, I was going to Oak Grove School and I made a dumb mistake and I put on a black sock and a blue sock and went to school. Now that could happen to me because in my drawer black socks can look like blue socks. And I, look, I was at school, and I found out, looked down at my feet and said, oh my gosh. Well, when you're in the seventh grade, you're concerned about what other people think. I don't know, I was. It made a difference if somebody laughed at me, okay, in the seventh grade. And I looked down at my feet and went, oh my gosh, somebody's going to spot this. And I was sitting at my desk, and I'd put my left leg in front of the desk and wrap my right leg around the side of the desk, so if you looked, you could never see both socks at the same time. Have you got me? Do you see the links I was going to in order to avoid ridicule? 
over socks. Now, what I should be able to say is if somebody looked down and saw I had a blue and black sock, I should be able to say something like, oh, yeah, I have another pair just like it at home. That's what I should be able to say. If I was confident inside, it didn't matter to me what they said, but it did matter to me what they said. And we carry that through life. It, it makes a difference what people say about you. But you know what Jesus said? He said, you must seek the glory that's from God. In Colossians 3, he said, you've got to set your eyes on things that are above, not on things that are earth. And he said, if you've got to set your eyes on things that are above where Christ is. And see, when your eyes are on Jesus, it's just like Stephen. I see him standing at the right hand of the Father. And the stones can hit, but they don't make any difference. Because your eyes are on him who has no beginning and has no end. But... If we take our eyes off of him and put them on anything else, including our abilities, our hopes, our aspirations. Um, you know, Miguel died at 69. Well, I'm 68. I didn't like doing that math. That's one year uh, older than me. I don't know what the Lord's got. And, I, and you never know. I may not be here next meeting. It's up to the Lord which way it goes. But I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded he is able to keep me against that day. It's not I know what I have believed, it's I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able. But the enemy will try to depersonalize the gospel. Are all your religious things straightened out? Do you know what this verse means? Can you explain this, that, and the other? You're putting your hand into the hand of the man who calms the waters, who stills the seas. And that's the thing we can share. It confounds me a lot when people come to me and say, I'd like to witness... I just don't know how to witness. I, I'm not really good at putting together those strings of verses, and I know there's some good ones in Romans, but how do you just witness to somebody? I said, look, you are telling that person about Jesus, and Jesus is the one you need to talk about. And you can just say to a person, I want to introduce you to Jesus who saved my life and can save your life, who gave me purpose and love and hope, and can give you purpose and love and hope. And anybody can say that. But if you're connected to religion, it scares you because you had not got all your verses right. If you're connected to Jesus, you're taking their hand and putting it in Jesus' hand. And it's a simple thing to do. Furthermore, people are not going to change their life into verses. They're going to change their lives because the verses point to the Christ. Jesus said in either John 5 or John 6, he said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they that testify of me, and still you will not come to me that you might have life. For the scriptures point to the Christ. And when Paul watched what happened to the churches, he constantly in his letters wrote things back that said, I don't want you to miss this thing. It's all about Jesus. Don't miss this thing and let it get transformed into a religion. And don't miss this thing and let it be a process. And for heaven's sakes, if all you're in is a civic club, you have really missed it. But remember Jesus. It's Jesus. So I'm going to read a few verses. And I know this is going to be maybe 11 or 12 verses. The reason I want to read 11 or 12 verses is to pound in as emphatic as I can, how important Paul preached that it's so easy for the enemy to take you away from 100% Jesus and just give Jesus some credit, but your processes and programs and religion over here are a big part of it. And listen to some of these verses. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, Paul says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and him crucified. And that's prefaced by them getting mixed up with religious principles. He said, I resolve to know nothing among you except one thing, and that is Jesus and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And Paul's saying these things because the enemy tries to lay these other foundations. There is no other foundation. 2 Corinthians 1.20, For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. 
all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2.20, excuse me, um, 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from simple and pure devotion to Christ. Simple and pure devotion to Christ. Do you know how many Christians have their minds led astray from simple and pure devotion to Christ? Tons. Tons. It's fair to say most Christians become Christians and then they're glad Jesus saved them. But now, now listen to these words. Now I'm a disciple. Now I am walking the walk of faith. Not faith in Jesus, but the walk of faith. Now I'm doing this. Now I've got this. Jesus, there is no walk of faith without Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. None of this works without Jesus. And yet the enemy tries to get us off Jesus any way he can, especially using religious terms. And boy, it sounds good saying I'm a disciple. Well, I, I took Jesus as my Savior, and I've got these years and years and years, and I'm working on being a disciple. Well, it's not wrong to say I'm working on being a disciple, but say I'm working on being a disciple of Jesus. But you see, the enemy will carve out the Jesus. I listened to somebody debating something that was Christian. I don't want to go over the topic. I went through the whole thing and listened to this whole person do this, and they went through three pages, and the name of Jesus was mentioned once, and that was it. And the name of Jesus is what it's all about. It is what it's all about. Uh, the First Methodist Church, or Barcliffe Methodist Church, used to have that little sign up there that said, Jesus said, let the children come unto me. And you would drive by, and you would just see the name of Jesus. Jesus said, I love seeing those signs on the roads that just say, Jesus. That's it, just Jesus. There's one on I-85. I love it. You see, Jesus changes everything. And Paul is saying here, the enemy will work on your mind so that you are led astray from simple and pure devotion to Jesus. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ. And we're going to talk a lot more on that verse, not today, but later. Galatians 4.19, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. He says, I'm in labor with you because you're into every other thing, and I am in labor to have Jesus formed in you. Tremendous verse. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And again, we'll talk much more about all these things that are in Christ. But there is no wisdom, there's no guidance, there's no truth or anything that's separated from Jesus. Now you say, this is very hard to understand. Oh, it's absolutely hard to understand. It's beyond our understanding. How can Jesus be wisdom? How can Jesus be the atonement? How can Jesus be life? How can Jesus be truth? Oh, he is those things. We just don't have enough PhDs to understand it, and we're never going to. You see, it's above what our natural mind can do. And this is a big deal because we exalt our natural mind. We think that we're smart. If you had to characterize today and just said, what's going on in the world, and how would I characterize today? There's a lot of running around today. Have you noticed? I talked to Helen about her schedule, and I think, well, Helen ought to have a decent schedule today. And then Helen describes to me what she's got to do. And she's taking care of her mother, and she's taking over here, and she's going over to Smyrna, and she, there's a lot of running around. We used to have neighbors on Saturday morning, and I'm embarrassed to say this a little bit, but they would sit out on their front porch, and we had four kids, and we were doing a lot of things. And they would just count on Saturday morning how many times the car went up and down our driveway going somewhere. They would just sit out in rocking chairs and count how much was going in and out of our house. But y'all know this, we are busy doing lots of things. If you had to say something else about what's going on, you'd say, well, you know, knowledge is really increasing. This is a really strange time. Starting around 1890 or so, knowledge has really picked up, and we have learned tons and tons more in the natural than we used to know. Tons and tons more. If you had to graph knowledge, 
You'd have to say knowledge was kind of going this way, and then all of a sudden it really took off this way. Do you know the verse in Daniel 12, 4? It says, seal up the words of these books until the last day. Because in the last day, people will be running to and fro, and knowledge will increase. Daniel 12, 4. Does that, does that, that hits me. We are running to and fro, and knowledge is increasing. I don't know if we've got another week or another hundred years. The Bible says we won't know the day nor the hour, but the signs of the times. But I'm telling you, we're in the signs of the times. It's an incredible thing. God, has, his hand is not shortened here. He is doing amazing things, and he has put every blessing in Christ. And the fact our mind can't understand these things doesn't mean it at all. You walk outside, and every one of us benefits from the heat that comes from the sun. But nobody in this room could write down the nuclear fusion equations that go on on the surface of the sun that generates the heat. Nobody in this room could do that. And yet we benefit from it, and that's how Christ is. Christ is doing things beyond our understanding, and yet we benefit from it because they, these things are hidden in Him. Then listen to this, Ephesians 4.15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head even Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, even Christ. Do you see the emphasis on Christ? Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul just flat says, For me to live is Jesus, to die is gain. And if you'll read through the letters of the New Testament, he just keeps putting out fires. You guys are trying to bring the law back in. You're trying to make the law and Jesus. You guys are trying to bring in knowledge. You're the beginning of Gnosticism. It's Jesus plus special understanding. You guys are trying to say it's Jesus plus this. You guys are trying to say Jesus was a good man, but he wasn't the only man the Son of God. He's putting out all these fires all the time, but his resounding message is, I don't want you to miss. This is the fullness of of the Godhead in bodily form. He is the exact image of the unseen God. He is Jesus for whom we were made and in whom we are complete, and we are complete in nothing else. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And he has to keep doing that because the enemy is coming at it just the other way. And we have to do that in our life. You say, well, I'll be closer to Jesus, but gosh, I've got so many details to handle in life. I can only deal with Jesus part-time. That's not true. Jesus knows how to handle details. The Bible says in Colossians 3.23, whatever your task, work heartily as serving the Lord and not men. Jesus is an expert on details. Furthermore, Jesus can consolidate details so they're not as detailed as you thought they were. He can save time when you thought you had no time. I mentioned this before that when the Lord pounded on me to write this book, I was being pounded on, and my objection was, I don't have time. And the first thing he said was, start at 10 o'clock at night, because I go to bed at 10.30, and start writing at 10 o'clock at night. I said, okay, I can do that. 10 to 10.30, I can do that. The first night I sat down at 10 o'clock, I wrote till 1.30. And the next day, I did not suffer ill benefits from it. I'm telling you, we have the full glory behind the veil opened up to us and we treat it common rather than holy and God's hand is not short and he's just waiting for people to welcome him uh, John shared with me recently in South Africa that there was a revival and what had come to them was the reason there was revival there and not in other places was they welcomed revival they wanted revival and our hearts have got to be that way. Our hearts can't say, well, let me see if I hear something interesting in what Jim has to say today and kind of supplement my knowledge of things and my Christian experience. No, it's that I am going to dive into Jesus headlong, all the way, in every way, and any small thing that keeps me apart from him, I abhor. So when we talked about abhorring evil, it's because we see the glory of the Christ that we hate the evil. If all we do is walk around in gray, then I'm okay and you're okay. All we have to do is coexist. Are you with me? You can see the words of the enemy. The Bible says to love righteousness 
and to hate iniquity just like Jesus did. And when you love him, you begin to hate that which is evil. It naturally follows. So at the end of the day, you cannot go up to Jesus and say, you told me to love righteousness and to hate iniquity, and I got a 10-part plan, and I really moved on that and did a really good job. This is the 10-part plan. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. The rest comes. You will love your neighbor as yourself. You will love righteousness and hate iniquity. A few more verses. But these are good verses. Aren't these good verses? Philippians 2, 9 through 11. For this reason also God exalted him, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can't walk away from that going, Jesus is important, but I'm on to bigger things. No! The name above every name, in heaven and in earth. Philippians 3.8, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. Jesus is to be preeminent. And that's what makes the Christian life full of joy. And that's what gives a testimony to be shared. Now, I'm all for letting people know that there is a hell. And if you just dance around and hear about the gospel and reject Jesus, you are not in good shape. Now, God will make the final judgment, but you are not in good shape. And hell is not a simple place. Not a, just an okay place. You don't check in at, you know, 6,000 degrees and move up to 8,000. Hell is terrible. And when Jesus told about the man that was in hell, he actually was considerate of his brothers and said, let me go back and talk to them. It isn't something that you've got to be a terrible murderer, everything, and only those people go. We have no righteousness apart from the Lord. But scaring people into Jesus bothers me. I don't want to just scare people. Now, I was scared. The preacher would talk about hell, and I would go, Jim, you're going to be an idiot if you live this whole life and go to hell. In addition to suffering, you're going to hate yourself. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because you were so stupid that you did that. And that's not bad, but it's not the fullness of the gospel. The fullness of the gospel is that we were made to fellowship with the Father, and God has worked things from the beginning to restore that fellowship to the extent He sacrificed Himself in the form of His Son, that we might have that fellowship with the Father and that we might know joy unspeakable and step into places we have never known. And that there is a force, the enemy trying to move, not a force, a spirit, the enemy trying to move to thwart the work of God, to steal, kill, and destroy. But God has overcome him and has put the overcoming power in you to overcome him. Now, there can't be bad news on the back end of that sentence. And you can't go, oh yeah, but the Middle East is getting complicated. Oh yeah, but... The election didn't turn out the way I thought. Oh, yeah, but the school curriculum in California is going to pot. Well, all those things could be true, but our God is bigger than all those things. He is bigger than all those things. And when he puts us in a place, if, if we were counseling Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what would we say before they went into the fiery furnace? Now, we know the end of the story, but Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were watching the attendants who stoked the flame die from stoking the flame they died and they said well we're going in there if i was shadrach i would probably be saying well it won't take long i'm going to be a cinder really fast so it won't take long i'll take comfort in that but if we were talking to him what would we say we would say listen you have no idea how famous you're going to be in every bible school they're going to talk about you from here till the end of the age as a matter of fact, no one will even be named Shadrach, and they'll mention your name, Shadrach. But we would tell them, when you step in, God is going to be with you, and the natural, even though it destroys others, won't touch you at all. Furthermore, you will not come out smelling of smoke. That's what we would tell them. Why? Because we know the end from the beginning. Do you know that our Savior knows the end from the beginning? And he said, the most important thing that you can do to show to love to show that you love me is to trust me, is to believe in me. It's either in, in John 5, he says, 
They asked Jesus something that was incredible that I answered the wrong way. And the Pharisees asked Jesus and said, what should we be doing that we might work the works of God? What should we be doing that we might work the works of God? Now I want you to think about how you would answer that question. What should we be doing that we might work the works of God? This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, this is the work that God asks of you, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Was that your answer? It was not my answer, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, I want to take a little side channel here and say, as Christians, we throw out several words that have common meaning. So we'll say, well, it's a life of faith. You need to faith. You have faith and trust in Jesus. We say trust. We all understand trust pretty good. We say believe, and in the Bible, believe means to trust. It doesn't mean to intellectually acknowledge the existence of. That is not what believe means. Believe means to trust in, in the Bible, and that's important. And, the other, and, and that is important that we get that, because the demons intellectually acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, and they did in the Scriptures. But the Scriptures, when he's talking about believing, he's talking about trusting. But the fourth word that we use, which is my favorite, is abiding, abiding in Christ. And that's part of this talk. We're not going to make it today, but that's part of this talk is that in John 15, Jesus laid out very clearly what abiding in Jesus means. But sometimes we'll, we'll say, well, I'm doing the walk of faith, and you have to do these 18 steps. You better not leave Jesus out of that, because there's really one step, and I'm going to give you a clue. Your 18 steps are different for every person. Some people walk right up and say, I know what evil is. I have seen a demon. You don't have to tell me about that. Other people go, there's no such thing as evil. They're just different ideas. Well, you have different people at different places, and God can deal with all of them. And the 18 steps for this person is different than the 18 steps here, and God knows just how to do it. He knows just how to do it. When you have a little kid, and they're trying to learn to get the applesauce, I don't know, what is this, Helen, one and a half or something like that, but we're getting the applesauce from the little bowl across the valley of the lap up until the mouth. Do you know this? know what I'm talking about? And it, you help them, and they get it on the spoon, but for some reason, this is my experience, may not be your experience, nine times out of ten when you're starting, instead of keeping it level, they just decide to twist that wrist. And that applesauce goes right down into the lap. I, I used to, Helen would bring home some of these bibs sometimes, and I'd say, honey, you need a bib that big? Yeah, you do. You need a big that you have not worked with. I want a kind of a little cute, that doesn't cover anything. Nine-tenths of the drops are in the lap. You know, that's where you have to cover. So, but what would happen if you watch that little kid bring it across, dump it in their lap, get a little tiny bit to their mouth because they're turning over, they don't get anything? What would you think of that mother if she said, there are 22 technical problems with your technique. First of all, you did not pay attention to the instructions. I distinctly said, da-da-da-da-da. Secondly, da-da-da-da. Would that kid go anywhere? No, that kid would be smashed down. But what do you do? You take your hand and you put it under their hand and you guide it and show them the way by walking with them and being joined at the hip with them and then they get it to their, and then you do that two or three or four more times and then you let them try it and what do they do? They dump it right in their lap. But then you help them again and you nurture them. Do you know who nurtures us? Jesus nurtures us. And I need nurturing different than you need nurturing. Some of you are experts at moving applesauce, and I'm hitting my lap five out of ten times. You got me? We all have different things, and Jesus knows how to nurture every one of us. It is such good news, we cannot hold it back. But the enemy will try to make it negative news. I'm not going to get through all these verses, and I'm over my time, and I know I'm, I apologize a little for that. But when he says, I count everything as trash that I may gain Christ, to me, that's the summary. I'll just say a couple of other verses, not quote them. Colossians 1, 14 through 19. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Colossians 2, 10. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Colossians 3, 11. These are things that Paul came back and he constantly said, and I just stopped in Colossians. It's all through the rest of the Bible. He's either putting out a fire of how you did something wrong, or he's telling you, I want you to make sure that you exalt Jesus to the highest place. Even Jesus said, I tell you someone greater than Solomon is here. I tell you someone greater than Jonah is here. 
And the fault that he found with cities was that they rejected him in the day of their visitation. For the kingdom of God, which is Jesus, had come near. So there is a tremendous joy in 100% giving ourselves to the Lord, not 95%. 95%, I'm going to say this, I take it the right way, is slapping the Lord in the face. It's saying, you're good, but you're not wonderful. He is wonderful. If you got me, if he really is who he is, and he is, it's no thought that we should give him our whole life. A couple of talks down the road, we're going to talk about the heart of a servant. The heart of a servant is ridiculous to non-Christians. It is the core of a Christian walk. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. The heart of a servant doesn't make any sense until you look into Jesus' eyes. And then you say, no, he is the Lord of lords. There is no more wonderful thing than to look at him and to be associated with him. To serve him is what naturally follows. I don't go, it's my duty to be a servant. All right, I better do five good things this week as a servant. And when we meet in equipping the saints, i got to be ready in case somebody asks me if I've done anything good. Okay, I'll get that done. Now, on to the bathroom, on to work, on to... No, this sounds like, uh, what is it, Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh. Da, 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 da. Who is a Christian would attach to an Eeyore? But many Christians inside, they're that way. That's the way they are. They don't, they're not connected to that Lord. No, but this is a strange thing. A lot of those people have given 95% of their life to Christ. They just haven't given the rest. The Lord showed me one more vision that was helpful, and it was a man in a balloon. And there were uh, 40 ropes holding the balloon down. And the guy had gone along, and he had cut one rope, he cut 39 ropes, and he came to the last one, and the enemy was saying to him, it is an absolutely fruitless effort what you're doing. You have done it 39 times, and there has been no effect. Cutting these ropes, and the ropes were like bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment, all these different things. And there was last rope, and I don't remember what was on it. But the enemy was fighting hard that he not cut that last rope because you and I know what would happen once you cut the last rope. And we would say, all that work you did 39, even though you don't see it rising, you were preparing yourself for something glorious. And now that you've moved from 95% to 100%, you're going to be walking in something you didn't even perceive when you were living in the way you were before. And that's what Jesus is doing. And he's saying, this is offered out to you. How is it that you hold back? How is it that you hold back? Don't you see me? And that's one of the reasons that worship is so important. And when we begin to worship, I hope at some time we're going to worship two hours in the Spirit. And people are going to go in and out, and somebody will be bringing food to those that are hungry. And we just keep worshiping because we're in front of him, and we're giving him the glory that's due his name. Now, we worship Him with our mouth. It's very important that our heart tracks our mouth. It's very important that our actions do that as well. But He reveals Himself when we worship Him. He reveals Himself. But in the Old Testament, when they dedicated the temple, they got 120 priests there, and to me, that was the peak of worship. And He said 120 people, priests were worshiping God, and, and, and they had brought, come in and were singing and doing all these things. The Bible says the Spirit of the Lord so descended into the temple that no one could stand up and minister because the Spirit of the Lord was so thick. Now, I originally thought that is the ultimate worship. That is the ultimate, okay? But it wasn't the ultimate worship. That was the ultimate worship in the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, interestingly enough, in Acts 120 people were gathered in the upper room. And then the Holy Spirit came and filled the temple of God again. But instead of the temple of God being built with mortar and brick, the temple of God was people. And when God filled his new temple with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord was so thick, it wasn't that no one could stand up and minister. It was that everybody stood up and ministered. Do you see? And God's plan is not to remain distant. God's plan is to indwell. 
And that's why he says in Colossians 1.27 that this is an incredible mystery. It's a rich mystery with great glory, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God is not distant. God is now indwelling and making a new creation in us so that it's not there's God and I'm basking in all this stuff that's hitting me external, but God has flowed through, changed everything from the inside, and now in some magical, not magical is not a good word, in some marvelous way, I am ministering God to other people. How could that be? I am an unworthy vessel. It is because of our God. Our God can do that. He can talk through Balaam's donkey. He can fill us with his spirit and have us minister even though we're imperfect. And that is a worship so much greater than was in the Old Testament. Well, that's what God wants to do. And we keep putting these things in his way saying, don't know if I can give you everything. I told my husband, he's got to be this way. I'm not going to live with him another five years if he doesn't change. You've got to give it to the Lord. You have to. You have to give the Lord every single thing in your life, not so that it can be controlled, but so that he can set you free from it. Because so long as something has you, you are in bondage to it. If, something, if you have to have something other than Jesus, you're in bondage to what you have to have. I want to emphasize so much there's a gigantic difference between 95% giving to the Lord and 100%. And it's not out of duty. It's out of our vision. When we see him, there is no way we can give him 95%. It's a slap in his face. And it means we really haven't seen him in his glory. In his glory. So let's have a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you that you are altogether wonderful and that all that we have seen of you stirs our heart to love you more. Take away the barriers. Take away the sticky places we have held on to. Take away the frustrating feelings that we have kept. Take away the deep things we thought were immovable. For you open doors no man can shut. Jesus, we ask you to come here and help this ministry help other people. We ask you to come here and let us be a body that ministers one to another, that you be glorified. We welcome you. You have an open invitation into our lives. And we ask that you keep us from being resistant in any way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.